now, our feature presentation. everyone, welcome to another episode of the Florida Sound Archive Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Kaiser, and for today's episode, I have on with me a very special guest, Roger Deering. He has been in a lot of bands over the years. For those of you that are in Florida, you may remember him from the band The Drills. Hey, Roger, how are you? What's happening, man? This is cool. Thanks for having me here. It is a pleasure yeah. having you on. I'm glad we're able to connect and to document not just the drills, but also your life, because you've been a very busy musician over the years. Is that right? I've had periods of being busy, and I've had periods of not being busy, but it's it's been a long journey since the drills, for sure. I imagine, because that all started back when? The early 80s? Drills started in the early 80s in, in the South Florida punk scene. Um, uh, we didn't start out as the drills. We started out as a band called the upsetters and, um, the upsetters were formed by me and a high school buddy from new England. Uh, my call, he came down and, uh, we said, let's put together a band down here. We we're going out and checking out the, the local scene and seeing cool bands. We were going to finders lounge. We were going to the, in Hollandale beach. I saw the Misfits there, uh, and I saw Black Flag there. Um, you know, I saw some really great local bands like the U.S. Furies, which I didn't know at the time, but that was the next band for Isaac Birch, who was in the Reactions, who were phenomenal. Um, and I just started seeing the scene down there, and I, I had moved down from New England. Uh, and, and I was already drumming up there trying to get in bands. I was friends with Gigi Allen back then. Um, we all real quick, each- real quick. What was that like being a friend with Gigi? Well, you know, uh, the Gigi that became uh, notorious and, and famous for all the things that he became famous for, he wasn't really quite there yet. Uh, he, Gigi was uh, a good rock singer. Uh, he was wild. He was already wild and in, you know, uh, Iggy type of stage personality, uh, but he wasn't um, out of control or whatever to the point where, uh, you know, I don't know. He, he became a different guy down the road, but early on he was super cool. And, and he, I used to get letters from Gigi for years. He would write me and we stayed in touch. Um, cool dude. Uh, but he, you know, he was up in new England trying to do stuff. I was trying to do stuff and I'm probably about 17 at this point. And, uh, you know, I, I headed down to Miami. Um, I got in some trouble up in new England. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I took off to a safer place, so to speak. And my mom was in living in Miami at the time. So I went down there and, um, and like I said, I, I started checking out the scene. I got in touch with Mike Hall, who was my neighbor up in new England. I said, come down here and let's start a band. And uh, he, he came down, 
uh, we met the other dudes. I met Alex Herrera. His car was broke down on US-1. I was pumping gas uh, in a gas station at that time for a job, trying to put a, a band together. I saw this poor guy in the middle of US-1 pushing a red Nova, uh, trying to get it out of traffic. I ran over to help him. We started pushing the car. And I looked over and I when I also when I looked in his car, he had some buttons. Remember the little punk rock buttons? And he had a bad brains button. And I went, wow, this is like the first dude that I've encountered that knew knows who the bad brains were. And when I was pushing his helping him push his car, I noticed he had a little earring, but it was a guitar string. And I went, Oh, this guy's a guitar player. And we started talking and he had just moved down from DC. And he brought over his guitar and his Les Paul. And the guy played like James Williamson of the Stooges. He shredded, he ripped. And I just went, oh, my God, this is the dude. Three of us eventually met Carrie Furlong, who was 16 years old. At this point, we had already been playing as the Upsetters. And um, and then Carrie joined. He has Carrie used to have to wait outside the club till we were ready to go on and he could run in and play and then they'd kick him out of the club. He was underage. And then, you know what? The four of us, uh, we stuck it out. And eventually we, uh, we started playing a club there called Flynn's Ocean 71. I don't know if you've heard of Flynn's. It was the CBGBs of South Florida. It was seven nights a week, nonstop rock and roll. I saw everybody in there. Uh, I saw the Minutemen. I saw the Dream Syndicate. I saw Black Flag multiple times in there. Uh, I saw Sonic Youth in there. I saw so many cool bands. Uh, the Drills started playing there regularly. The, the, there was a couple people booking the place. There was a guy named John Flynn that owned the club. And he used to call me when bands would cancel. And he'd always tell me, you guys are the best $50 band in town. Paid us 50 bucks. And then we started getting on the bigger shows. We, we opened a show for the UK subs and um, that was it. We were off and running and um, you know, eventually uh, Flynn's closed. The scene went through various changes and then came the cameo theater, which is very notorious now. And we became a regular at the cameo uh, Richard shelter. You've probably interviewed Richard over the years here. Yeah, but, He's been uh, on Richard. Yeah, Richard uh, kind of was our, you know, our guy. He he always said to people, those guys are tight. They, they, they you know, they're a tight man and they play, show up and they play and they bring people. It's, what else do you want? And so we were playing a lot of shows at the Cameo. And, and you know, uh, during that period, you know, we were playing with everybody from the Ramones, the Dead Boys, uh, you name it, every bit, you know, who's for do. We play with everybody over while our tenure in Florida. For those that didn't see you all at that time, because you played with a lot of punk bands, maybe more hardcore bands and that sort of thing, but your sound as the drills, it really wasn't the same as some of those bands that you played with. So how would you describe the drills music to someone listening to this interview who was not as familiar with the drills or maybe maybe, well, maybe didn't get a chance to see you all play? I, I think we never really sounded like a hardcore band. But we played with the conviction of a hardcore band. And our sound was more like a motorhead 
the early drills was a little bit more rock and roll, like maybe a little bit of Johnny Thunder's uh, vibe in there also. But when Kerry joined, he had this kick drum style and he drummed just like Filthy Animal Taylor from Motorhead. And that was the common bond was Motorhead. Um, so I would say that the drills evolved into kind of a, a garage rock motorhead. And, and because of that aggression, we went over great. I mean, kids were slam dancing to our shows all the time. We, we were part of the hardcore scene. We just weren't generic hardcore. We, we were bringing what we were bringing. And we, like I said, we played with enough conviction and volume and power that it, the kids were growing mental. They were slam dancing, stage diving. You know, it, to them, it, it was just high energy, you know? Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the drills uh, eventually, uh, Alex Herrera was the first to kind of go. He's gone now. He's passed away. Um, the first of the great guitar players that I've been lucky to play with in my 40 years of rock and roll now. But um, Alex passed away, not while he was in the drills. This was years later, but he kind of fell by the wayside. He was, you know, had stuff going on. And we brought in a different guy named Greg Dawson. Uh, we were still doing big shows and as well as club gigs. But um, eventually what happened was there was a big giant show with uh, the Circle Jerks and the Necros and, uh, and us. And it turned into a riot at this show. Uh, the, at, at this particular stage, if you remember in the hardcore scene, both, for instance, the Necros and uh, the circle jerks, as well as the drills, all went through a period where they all started growing their hair along and started getting in a little bit more metal and rock. Uh, Necros definitely did that. The circle jerks were getting a little bit more, you know, musical. And so I don't know what triggered it, but there was a eventually Keith Morris, who's a dear friend of mine, he got pissed off about something and he sat down on the stage and refused to play. And it caused this thing where the skinheads charged the stage. Uh, next thing you know, Greg Hetson, another good friend of mine, is in a fist fight with a couple of skins, Miami skins. They ran over. They're now brawling with the Necros. It's a full-fledged fucking brawl. Uh, they come, the, a group of guys come running over to where our little group of people, the drills and our, our people, were standing on the side of the stage. Now we're in it, and it was like, oh, oh, let's get out of here. It, it got really ugly and, you know, ended up with us running to jump in our van with like 20 skinheads chasing us. It was like a scene out of the Beatles, Hard Day Night, except it wasn't chicks. It was right. <laughs> and like I said, we, we dove in the van and took off. And I just remember after that show going, you know what? This scene, fuck this scene. I, I probably can't say that word, right? No, you can speak as freely as you wish. Right on. Um, you know, we're like, you know what? We've, we felt like we were outgrowing the scene. It was like, who wants to play to a bunch of kids that want to beat up, you know, the band members or like standing there flipping you the bird because you're not playing generic hardcore. It was a younger, different crowd coming in and it was time for us to go. I just knew it. And like, so the drill said, well, do we go to New York? We're, we knew some other Miami people 
uh, Alex Mitchell and Gary Sunshine were doing Circus of Power. Uh, another kick-ass great band, all Florida alumni. Uh, so we knew some folks up there, but Mike Roach from TSOL, I was a really good friend with him, and he kept saying, come to L.A., come to L.A., I'll hook you guys up out there. And we did. We we made the move to L.A. in 87, and, um, you know, we roughed it out. We slept in our cars at, you know, in the parking lot at Rock and Roll Ralph's here. And uh, eventually, you know, we we landed on our feet here. And that's a whole nother chapter. We, you know, the drills evolved into something else. We, you know, it, it's been a journey, but that, that Florida punk scene um, that we came out of was so vibrant, um, especially in, in Miami, uh, the variety of bands there was astonishing. Okay. I know we were talking about, you mentioned TSOL and we were talking before the interview about mm -hmm. a show that you played with TSOL and Orlando band noise for the needy yeah, at the, at the, for the needy. at the Cuban club in Evo yeah, city yeah. in Tampa. So what was it like playing shows outside of South Florida? Maybe when you made your way up further North, whether it be yeah. the Gulf side or the central side of North Florida, talk about that. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, we, uh, at one point, we did a show with DRI in down in Miami. And one of the guys from DRI, I think it was the singer, I'm drawing a blank on his name, he's really cool. He started telling promoters about the drills. And now we started getting phone calls from clubs, you know, up and down the coast, East Coast and out of state. And so uh, the Cuban club thing, we, we went to Tampa a number of times that uh, the the one thing I remember about that Cuban club thing, that's the outdoor theater, right? That's killer. Uh, I remember there was this asshole running around spraying like pepper spray on people while they were, you know, slamming and having fun. And um, this is one of the things I remember about that show. And the drill stopped the show and said, that guy right there has got to go. Like, we wanted him gone. He was like, not cool at all. And, um, and then I just remember there was like a, a, a group of kids that wanted to kick our ass after the show. You know, I, that's the main thing I remember about that night. <laughs> I've had people come on the podcast when talking about Tampa at that time, how it was even more violent than South Florida was at that time. Did you have that same experience when you went to Tampa? I definitely saw that, you know, there, it, there was definitely an element of it there. And I mean, generally, you know, the drills always garnish the respect of whoever we were playing in front of, no matter how skeptical they may have been or whatever. But I, I, that particular night, I do remember like literally stopping the show and going, this guy, you know, this guy, asshole right here, just let's kick him out of here. And, but, you know, uh, but I do remember the venue. I remember the night. I remember that. And, uh, you know, as NTSOL, that was the Joe Wood period. Uh, and Mitch, Mitch was the drummer, the revenge. Uh, and uh, what was the other album they did? Um, uh, Change Today. TSOL Change Today. It's a great record. And that was that lineup of, uh, of TSOL. And, we would play with those guys all the time too. I, 
I was their coke cane connection. <laughs> How did they know you were the guy for that, Roger? Well, we uh, well we we played with them early on. That was another band when we were the Upsetters. We did a show opening for TSOL. It was a two night stand. TSOL toured all the time. They were coming down through South Florida and making that journey for a punk band back then, down up and down Florida. That's commitment, man. That's commitment. They uh, those guys were going for it. Um, we just met him early on and like, you know, uh, that those were the days, a lot of drugs and alcohol, you know, everybody was drinking and smoking and snorting, you know, that's what you did. Great right. guys. All of those guys are great. I still are friends with all of those guys. Nice. Nice. Yeah. yeah I, I could probably spend an hour just talking about those shows at TSOL. <laughs> I'm a fan of that band, but uh, this is about... Uh, the Florida Sound Archives. We won't get into all that, but I do want to talk more about your time playing in other parts of the state. Uh, Do you ever get a chance to play in places like Orlando, Gainesville, Tallahassee, that sort of thing? Atlanta, which is, you know, that Atlanta back in the day had the, uh, what was the name of that place? Uh, It's a punk club where, I mean, you could crash there. They had like little bunks upstairs and, they would just lock you, lock you in if you wanted to spend the night. They'd go, okay, and they'd give you a, like a small keg of beer. Um, yeah, but we did a lot of shows all throughout uh, Florida, like, you know, different halls. And I mean, this was before punk was a business. It wasn't a business. It was a local promoter kid that was probably 17 to 20 years old that found a cool little VW, uh, VW hall or whatever, VFW hall or, you know, a little gym or old beat down spot and pr- started promoting shows. All of those hardcore shows were like that. Bands were traveling in a station wagon, you know, or that's just how it was those punk days, you know? Um, so I, you know, yeah, we did the drills played wherever we could, you know, um, when you guys were traveling up and down together, do you have any favorite places to stop at? Any kind of roadside attractions you would normally try to get to? No, not really. It was more about like, we got to get there. Um, you know, let's uh, drink as much alcohol as we can while we're on the road. And then, you know, let's get back. It, it was just like, let's just get there. And, you know, I mean, it wasn't like uh you know, the, the tourist attractions of Florida were still any kind of interest to us at that point. But they were um, more prominent, though, back in the 80s. Now everything looks the same. But back then, there were a lot more things you could probably detour off to if you wanted oh, yeah, to. Definitely. You know? Like alligator pit or whatever, you know, the mummy or whatever. Exactly. You know? <laughs> uh, uh, no, you know, the uh, back then it wasn't we weren't necessarily I wouldn't say we were touring, but we would head out to gigs, you know, and if we could string a couple gigs together, even better. But there was many a time where we just drove from Miami with a stop maybe in Tampa or maybe Orlando and then or just straight to Atlanta and come back. You know, there was no rhyme or reason other than, hey, we just this promoter up here wants us to play. Let's go play it. It wasn't like there was a touring schedule back then. 
Yeah. I'm yeah. also thinking too, to kind of help get the word out about you guys, what zines or publications do you remember back then that was also helping to spread the word of the drills? I remember, well, the, uh, you know, locally we were always uh, had a lot of press, but um, the drills, I remember us being in, uh, believe it or not, a cream magazine. And also um, we were in maximum rock and roll. I, I remember they remember that mag. It was, that was pretty much a, the hardcore magazine. I think, um, you know, they seem to be kind of fond of us. I, I got a letter from uh, Jello Biafra back then in, in Miami asking for a copy of the drills record. Uh, you know, I, I gladly mailed them one. Uh, I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, you know, he collects punk rock records. Um, you know, we did do that record in um, the, the drills did a record and, you know, people have been asking me about it and stuff and uh, it's cool. But like, I, I always had a, a chip on my shoulder about that album and it's funny, I when uh, Joey Seaman from the Punk Under the Sun book uh, uh, was given uh, uh, doing an interview, I told him how I felt about that record. And he kind of I think he omitted it uh, out, out of the book, out of the sense of like uh, he didn't want to offend anybody about it. But I, I just felt like it didn't represent who we were as a the sound of what we were live. And there was some recording things that happened primarily Alex Herrera, who I was talking about earlier, who literally sounded like James Williamson on steroids and uh, his guitar rhythm, guitar playing, he would play lead and rhythm all at once was very noisy, but that's, that's the beauty of it. Like, you know what I mean? It was like Greg Ginn from Black Flag or something, just noisy as hell. And it got removed out of the out of the mix for a cleaner guitar thing. And I, I it's just so hard for me to even listen to. So it's, it's a sore spot. But it, on the other hand, when we put it out, it got picked up for distribution through like Jim, which was kind of a big distributor. And subsequently... We started getting a lot of press out of it, also being in Cream Magazine, which is kind of cool. It was a really good review, too, of the album. And um, and I've seen other things where people have went, oh, that Drills record was kind of the beginning of this punk and roll thing because we were rock and roll also. It wasn't all just, you know, like we were into the Stooges and Motorhead. And, and that was before those bands became like you know, role model for a whole bunch of other bands. You know what I mean? Right. So, yeah. and the and the cover I think is also iconic, like that the uh, the '87 album, right? The, the right, self-titled right. one. When I first saw the cover, not knowing what you sounded like at the time, I was thinking this is going to be like metal. And then when I heard it, I mean, there's elements of that yeah. in there, but yeah. I didn't, I didn't get like a full on heavy metal record. So when right. you all were putting together the cover and the artwork and all that, like what went into getting that all together and maybe walk us through what that was, uh, that process looked like. Well, that record came about, there were some people that had some money and wanted to do, get the drills in the recording studio. We had done some other demos and stuff, but so we went in and, and, and worked on this thing, but, 
I didn't know anything about recording. I didn't know jack shit, even though I was the primary songwriter of the band. Um, but the technical end of it, and I'm still kind of like that. Um, my All my energy seems to be focused in the creative end of music, and the technical end is still this, you know, thing that I have to deal with. But with the drills, um, Carrie, our drummer, had a recording experience, and he kind of took the helm of it. And I don't know. I just didn't really like the way things progressed with the record. And when it pulled out the the, the noisy guitar stuff, I, I just felt like it was not a proper presentation of who we were. On the other hand, like I said, I am proud of it. Just the sense of it is... Um, it's an, it's an achievement. It's a testimony of what we were doing at that time uh, musically. Just it didn't, I felt we cheated the people that wanted, should have heard it. And it's perhaps the only accessible recording you can get from the drills. Because uh, the tape, yeah, because the tapes, unless you, <laughs> you get lucky scoring one of those, it's, they're very far in between. But the record, there, you know, that comes up for sale every now and again. Yeah, there's some other stuff. Uh, we did uh, record more of a straight head, uh, straighter metal album uh, after Alex left with this new guitar player. It was much more uh, punky metal. Um, and, but that never got, we, you know, it just kind of, we never could really find a home for it. And by the time that, uh, you know, time moved on, I had already moved into a different phase of with a whole new group of songs. So, but that there's another record called the sowers of discord. And I don't know, maybe me or Carrie should try to like spend some time and, and, you know, find somebody who wants to put it out, but there's a lot of, of really good drill stuff. I think that the drills as a band, we didn't really blossom fully till we got to LA. Like LA changed the band in a bigger way, like it to the point where um, it was very much sink or swim, you know, uh, you know, we were good. We were good. But like now we're in LA and there's just like a million bands, you know, a million bands. And, uh, but we, you know, I think we we moved forward as a band here, and then in in nineteen eighty nine or ninety in nineteen ninety, we landed a big record contract worth millions of dollars. So you know, yeah, we were dreamers, and yeah, we slept on the floors, and like we came out of the punk scene, the the Florida punk scene, the South Florida punk scene, the South Florida hardcore scene, and managed to kind of evolve and get a record deal uh, a few years later after we left LA was to me testimony that the band was real. There, there was a commitment there and there was a musical vision and a goal that uh, me and Carrie, the drummer, we both had that in common. Like we had stuck it out all those years and, and got a record deal. But you know, that, that became the next chapter of me and Carrie's musical journey together that started in Florida and that band evolved into a band called Rattlebone. And, you know, uh, you know, that's a different story too, but. You think when you got the contract, did it change anyone in terms of the, the vibe of the band Did anyone 
change their approach based on their their being now you know before you know hey we're doing this for fun this is all great but now that there's money involved sometimes you know money can sour things it, did did it change anything in the band uh no it, it really didn't um we you know we got a cash advance uh we all went and got some gear which was amazing i mean walking into guitar center and saying i want that rickenbacker bass you know, if, after never having a new instrument in my entire career at that point, it was cool. Like we, so we got a cash advance. We, we now had our rehearsal space paid for, which I don't remember how much it was, but it was on the corner of Hollywood and Western in the most notorious building in LA, practically, uh, you know, the floors were, you know, full of hypodermic needles and, you know, the crypts and the bloods were shooting at each other and the, the Hondurans and the Ecuadorians were having gunfights and this was all right there. Um, so we finally had a way to pay for that place. And, you know, instead of us having the hustle, now we had a record company covering that bill. And then we got some tour support, which we never had before. Now we were able to go in a van and play for 30 days and come home. And so, uh, but at individually, no, it didn't, change any of the guys we we were who we were the unfortunate downside of this whole thing is is that years before i we had landed a record deal worth a lot of money i had a bad drug problem going on back then and so when that was going on that was getting worse as time was going on and um you know, we still got the big record deal. We were still touring and stuff, but the drugs were definitely um, taking prominence in how I was dealing with my daily activities. I was a drug addict and that became the priority. And, and you know, guys were now waiting on me and, uh, you know, it, and then that's when things start started to change. It really didn't have anything to do with us getting a record deal. It, it, that was more about like, cool, this is what we are all here and striving for. Now we got it. Now let's rock it. Um, so the starting point of it was great. Yeah. Was, yeah, it was really cool and, and an amazing experience from having to eat shit <laughs> for 15, 13 years before that. Right. Yeah. yeah. And in terms of that, that experience you went through with, with the whole drug, drug use and what have you, did you find yourself having to go to rehab or were you able to come clean uh, or cleaner maybe with the support that was around? Like, how did that work for you? Well, that, that came later on down the road. I've been clean now uh, for almost 22 years. So um, at, I didn't get clean. Uh, Rattlebone ended up eventually we, we, what happened with Rattlebone is, is we put out a record, uh, uh, EP, we toured off of it, and we came back home. The record company was telling us, your record has sold 80,000 copies. Your, your album, when you're done, is going to go gold. We have this guy, Dave Jordan, producing our records. Dave Jordan was the hottest producer in rock and roll at that point. He had done Jane's Addiction. He did Alice in Chains the first two albums he did the offspring record that exploded through the roof um he did he, you know he's worked with the stones he was a major record producer involved with us and so 
you know, the goal was to make a great record with this guy. And, and while we were making the record, the drug problem came to a head. The engineer, Dave's engineer, is driving me downtown so I can cop heroin, so I can be functional in the studio to get through the, the day. It's not good. You know, we had a big fight in there. Dave walked out. It was a disaster. Um, and so what we ended up finishing that record. Subsequently, that record gets canned, put on a shelf. Uh, they start to pull the money away because they're now sensing dysfunction. Right. And and then, you know, that was it. You know, it came came to a halt. Uh, Brendan, our lead guitar player, went to Masters of Reality who are gods and then from masters of reality was in queens of the stone age for seven years so the pedigree of that band in in the musicianship it was badass and it was still me and carrie i was still on bass and vocals carrie on drums brendan mcnichol on guitar and we had a hammond b3 organ player uh which was insane because he played through marshalls and uh you know, it's like Deep Purple on meets Motorhead. Um, but that nice. band came to a halt. That that was it. It that's how it it just petered out from drug use. You know, we just got burnt out. Yeah. yeah. And how did you find yourself able to rebound? Like what came next for you once that kind of fizzled out? Well, I kicked around for a little bit, um, strung out, and then I I ended up uh playing with my friend Brian Small in the hangman. Uh, he was calling it Sick Greenheart at the time. I did some shows with those guys. They kicked me out because I was getting loaded. Um, it got to the point where I couldn't do music anymore. All the guitars were gone. Eventually, was homeless. And um, uh, at this point, I'm 39 years old, and uh, I'm sleeping in a garage at this point. And a friend of mine uh, in another two friends of mine came and they got me and they said, we're taking you, you know, we're taking you somewhere. And, uh, I was too beat down. I was just done. And, uh, they brought me to a hospital out in Pomona here in California and I detoxed out there and I, and I got clean and, uh, and I've stayed clean. Um, so that was at age 39. And, and from that point on, I, I, my musical journey, that's where I did Smash Fashion. And I, I did Smash Fashion because um, I, was, uh, I was happy to be alive. And, you know, it was uh, like being born again without Jesus, but through music and like feeling like, wow, man. And, you know, because I had wasted a lot of years on, on the heroin. And uh, so I wanted to do colorful, vibrant, fun music. And, um, you know, we made that band did, I think we made some really cool records. It took us a while. I think our third and fourth record are great. Um, I, I, I am so proud of that stuff. I think it's some of the best stuff I've ever been involved with. And that was the mindset. Like I, I didn't want to be in a dark space. Um, you know, I wanted to dress cool. I wanted to play fun music you know i wanted it to be loud and sexy and funny and but still kick ass that's what i like about 
Smash Fashion is you get a real visual of what's going on because there's a lot of videos that you can watch. So talk about that. Talk about the importance of being able to have not only the music aspect, Mm -hmm. but the visual part as well. People can also watch. Yeah. Well, you know, I think um, the video thing, uh, we did do a lot of videos with that band. Uh, We had a friend who was great, a great camera guy, and he was a fan of the band. And we were a fan of what he was able to do. And, um, you know, we would pick out certain songs along the journey. And um, and we just figured this is a, an economical, cool way to try to get some exposure. And, you know, it's like it, the videos have always frustra- frustrated me in the sense that creatively I love them. I think they're fun and they're great and all that. And I think they totally they it reads uh, who we are musically also. But it, it always kind of chafed me that the, the, they would cap out at like 5,000, 7,000 views when I would see stuff that where I'm just scratching my head going, how, how the fuck does this video have 500,000 views? Like there are certain things I would just scratch my head going, I don't get it. Like it's, just, it's terrible. But they would, I, I never could figure out the whole algorithm vibe of like, how, how do you make a video go viral? Like my last band, uh, the band that I'm doing right now, Crime Wave, we kick ass video, you know, like, you know, 4,000 views or whatever. Like, I, I don't know. I'm not a salesman. I, I, you know, but it's, I don't get it. It is, Sorry, it, went, it, off, went off topic. <laughs> That's okay. The, it, is, it is interesting, though, how that can all work out. Because sometimes the, the thing, it's like music. Sometimes that song you think is going to be the hit isn't. But the song on the B side becomes even more popular. You didn't yeah. see it. You don't know we see it coming. But uh, it's yeah. it's weird how it works out that yeah, way. Yeah, for sure. But uh, thinking about touring for a minute because you know having having moved out to LA and starting to get into some different bands i know you went through that period where you were recovering and trying to get clean right so did you do or attempt any touring in these years prior to no. crime wave starting no no uh, uh smash fashion did stuff uh we smash fashion went to europe twice uh we were in the uk and we um we did numerous little jaunts on the east coast uh uh it was great because our bass player at that time scarlet uh he he was living in philly so we could all like you know we could get to philly and we would rehearse in philly and then we could do a run of shows you know up to new york back through the jersey shoreline all that stuff which i'd like to get going again really soon with crime wave but um uh, as far as like in-depth touring no it just never we could never find a booking agent that was willing to go that deep with us it was really weird we smash fashion was caught in this weird place where it was kind of uncool to be doing what we were doing you know what i mean like it it just it was hard to find a a a group of like-minded bands to attach with for us um where a little bit later on it became this thing and they were calling it, you know, the new wave of glam or whatever. Uh, and there were some cool bands involved in that, but we, at that point, I, first of all, I never, 
a thought of Smash Fashion as a glam band. I always thought of us as a flamboyant rock band. Like, you know, it's like, I, I never thought that we uh, crossed the line into cheesy. <laughs> I always thought that there was a, there was a good um, boundary with what we were doing on keeping things cool. And, and uh, I'm proud of that band. I really am. I, I'm still Stuart, his guitar, guitar work, Stuart Kassan, um, who we also know through the hardcore scene. He's a DC guy. And um, he was the guitar player in Smash Fashion, and he's the guitar player in Crime Wave. And he's, you know, huge in, in what, the, what, it, what the whole vibe is about. Like, that was the other thing I always thought, Smash Fashion, at least listen to the guitar playing, for God's sakes. Like, you know, especially on his end, like, you're, there's some fantastic guitar stuff in those songs, you know? Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think when it comes to labels, I think labels and genres and all that sort of thing, I think has have morphed a bit over yeah. the over the years. So what was once maybe this different generations yeah. don't always think of it in that way. So sure. I can imagine yeah. maybe that's why some people may have thought, oh, these this is like a glam band uh, versus like maybe just more like a flamboyant band because of just the yeah. way artistically it may have come through and just that morphing of what some of these terms have meant once upon a time and maybe what they mean yeah. in today's yeah. times. So. Well, I, I do remember that uh, when, when we made the Big Cat Love record, which is probably my favorite of the records we did. When we made the Big Cat Love record, we had enough common sense this time to go that this record needs a publicist, right? So when we got a publicist on board for that record, he said to us, well, I need to market you guys to a certain, I need to have a point to go off of and he's the one that brought up the glam thing. And I remember at first I was a little bit apprehensive. I was like, ah, because there's a lot of people that would associate glam with, say, maybe Motley Crue or Poison. Not saying anything negative about that, whatever, but that's not where we came from musically, aesthetically, or even visually. Like, you know, our thing was more like, you know, like glam, like maybe like a T-Rex thing or, you know, just an earlier period. Of right. Glam. That's what it's, I usually think about when someone mentions. Right. Glam. Right. But there but, but what, what my concern was is that when people went, if people went, oh, Smash Fashion's a glam band and then immediately they're turned off because they're associating glam with this other thing. You know what I'm saying? So. I, I went, I had to go with it because they needed to have something to, to push the record off as, but whatever. I, I ultimately, I don't give a shit. It, you know, it, it was a great, that was a great band. And it was a, I had a, a pleasure of playing with some great musicians while we did that. The great Tony Kinman. I don't know if you know about Tony, but Tony was in the Dills, one of the first American hardcore band toured with, uh, the Clash and Bo Diddley. I mean, the dude was a legend. Rank and File was his other band. And that guy played, he's the bass player on the Big Cat Love record, man. That dude's a fucking legend, you know? 
Um, so I'm, I'm proud of the, of the recorded legacy, especially the last two records. You know, I think we made a couple of really good records. What caused that band to stop? Um, well, Crime Wave started off as let's make the fifth smash fashion record. And uh, we were we were trying to find people. Uh, uh, our rhythm section, Repo, one of the great drummers I've been lucky to play with. Repo moved back to Finland. Uh, Repo was in the, uh, in Smack, which is like they're a Finnish rock gods. They're great. Um, Repo was in that band. But when he went back to Finland, honestly, we couldn't find anybody to fill his shoes. No matter how many times I jammed with other people, they weren't good enough. And so, <clears throat> I don't know, we started to lose enthusiasm. And, uh, but then I had a grip of songs again. And I said, look, let's start. Let's see if we can get a rhythm section going to Stuart. And we had a couple different other guys come down. We found a dude, I, a bass player I really loved. He, and he disappeared. Found out later he went to prison on federal charges. <laughs> wow. So, uh, yeah. Uh, but then we, we hooked up with these two other cats. Uh, they came in as a rhythm section. They were from the um, stoner doom scene. Uh, they're in a band called Goat Snake. Pretty heavy sounding. <laughs> I am familiar. And, uh, yeah, they had another band. Uh, they're another band called Sonic Medusa. So these guys came in together, uh, bass player and drummer. And we started jamming with them. And we were going through some of what I was thinking would be some of the new Smash Fashion material. And um, it, it became evident that this was, we started jamming and it became evident this was going to be something different. Um, and it did. Uh, it's a little bit. It's funny, I've gone a little bit back towards, I think, the drills aesthetic of punky, hard rock uh, with, you know, but left of center. And, and I think that's the one thing, uh, whether it's the drills or whether it was Smash Fashion or, um, you know, now Crime Wave, it's, it's always been a little bit off and a little bit left of center. It's like, you either like it or you don't. It's, uh, we're finding more and more people are, are digging what we're doing. I, and I think there's, um, there's a, a, a realness and a commitment to making music from the guys involved in this band that translates when you hear it. It's like, okay, you know, this is, this is good. Yeah. You know, I'm really excited about this band. What do you think helped to contribute that shift to maybe doing more music that taps into some of the drills sound? Were you listening to anything different? Was it the people that you were in the band with? Like, what do you think brought that on? That's a good point. Actually, it's, it's both of those, which you had mentioned. I, I found myself um, a few years back going back and listening to a lot of stuff that was coming out in my formative years. So 1979, say, and I'm listening to a lot of different music that was coming out. There was Cheap Trick. There was The Pretenders. There was Killing Joke. There was The Cars. Um, you know, there was Van Halen. There was The Ramones. There was, there was just so much great rock and roll going on. And a lot of it was new and exciting, including the new wave of British metal 
and punk. And a lot of that new wave of British metal stuff is this stuff that inspired Stuart as a musician. Uh, my school's a little bit more like garage rock, but, you know, I was listening to that. Uh, the song I started writing songs that were more aggressive. We're older, things, things have changed. A lot of our friends are, are dying or gone. Uh, you know, there's a, a different energy in the air. America's a different vibe politically. There's a different political climate going on. There's a lot of division. There's a lot of disconnect uh, and a lot of chaos for guys like from for me, from my generation. It you know, a lot of times I look around, and I go, wow, it's, it's just crazy. You know, friend, families don't talk to each other over politics. There's gun violence out of control. It, it's just I don't know. I, the rose tinted glasses that Smash Fashion had. Um, are not there anymore. It's like yeah. I'm just seeing things differently, you know. And, um, even our first the leadoff song that yeah. I, as the American Carnage, I mean, that's just about the madness of of how daily violence and mass shootings is so common now. You know, it, it, it's not taking either side of anything other than it's just a, an observation of like, this is fucking madness right now, you know. Not to get all serious here, but <laughs> no, but that's an important part because obviously that could help to change the way that you might approach a certain record based on what's going on in around you, right? You know, yeah, different Absolutely. topics and things, things of that nature. The energy, that exactly, kind of energy. Yeah, exactly. Sure. I'm also curious too because of the different music that you've played over the years, your family and those that are very close to you. Like, what have been their thoughts of your music career? Well. I would say this. My mom was my biggest fan. Uh, she's passed away. But, um, you know, I don't know. It's weird. I uh, I never really ask uh, my family members what they think. Of. I ask my girlfriend, you know, and she'll let me know. Like, she's got cool taste and she'll, she'll let me know if something's worth, you know, pursuing musically, right? But um, – I don't know, man. I just kind of, you know, when you, when you throw stuff out there, you know, it's, you're just so it's, it's vulnerable. You're vulnerable, you know, cause you're throwing stuff out there. Like you, you just can't think about anything other than did this mean something to me? And, you know, am I giving it what I've got? And if you, if you're good with that, it's, it's a great feeling because it's a, it's an artistic satisfaction. So validation from, say my brothers who yeah my 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 one brother said to me this is the most kick-ass band you've had yet <laughs> he did say that I, I played it for him in a car and he just went dude this stuff kicks ass this is your most kick-ass band yet and i went okay cool yeah it is but you know you just to make a long story short is uh, the whole thing about validation especially in today's world with social media right the the thumbs up that's the validation right like you everybody's seeking that it's like that's all cool and all but it, it's got to feel right with you and then you that way you don't give a shit you know what i mean it's great if you get it you're not going to be tripping if you don't you know and that's that's where you need to be if you're going to be doing this right especially at my age it's like your point you know what i mean it's like you don't have the time for any of that stuff because it doesn't mean anything. 
you know, so you just go for the, the stuff, you know, the good stuff. Right. <laughs> exactly. Is, yeah. uh, is crime wave the only current band project you have going on at the moment? Yeah. I, you know, I, I've had friends ask me to, to collaborate and, you know, really cool people too, that I would love to do stuff with. But the reality is, is that the, I don't know a whole lot, but I'll tell you what, I know that I only have so much energy to give to the music, which is everything. It's at a point where I can't let up and go do something over there that's not really 100% me. It's like, I'd rather just give everything to this. And, you know, so it, it it's a, it's an emotional and it's a creative and it's a financial and spiritual commitment to, you know, pursuing, you know, what you want to do musically. And it's weird. I, I, for so many years, I treated music. Um, I don't know, with, I, I don't want to say disrespect, but borderline disrespect on how I viewed myself as a songwriter and a musician. You know, I still had that rock and roll junkie mentality about, um, you know, it's okay if it's got all raggedy or loose ends and whatever. And then I just over the, you know, as time moves on, I'm in a different space now where now it, I want it to be good and tight and, you know, and handle my business instead of just kind of dabbling. Is there any new music Prime Wave has that should be coming out soon? Okay, well, cool. I'm going to do a shameless little plug. This was the Crime Wave 24-7 EP. Uh, it's pretty ass-kicking. It's, it's getting great reviews and airplay all over the world. Um, that's available on the Bandcamp thing. Um, but new music is uh, coming starting Saturday of this week and Sunday. We're actually going in the studio. The timing's real cool here. I get to tell you this. Uh, we're tracking eight new songs and this is kind of a bigger studio this was the the ep was recorded live in our um, rehearsal space downtown which is cool it's got a great vibe but we're actually now going to go into a bigger studio and see see what happens in a bigger studio eight new songs which um if everything goes as planned we'll have that out like you know by before summer you know or right at summertime that's nice. that's the goal yeah any plans of doing any light touring? Definitely. Uh, the UK seems to be a spot where there's a vibe for us. Um, you know, it's it, it's vibrant over there still. It's vibrant. There's a lot of cool scenes. Like we want to get up to uh, Portland, Oregon. They've got a great metal scene going on up there. But that's another thing with Crime Wave. When I talked about left of the center stuff, it's like, it's it's hard rock, but where where does that sit in? It's this always the same dilemma because there's so many different influences that go into the music. And you know, Smash Fashion had the same thing, same dilemma. Where where would you aim Crime Wave? It's a hard rock band, but it's not a heavy metal band, but it's not a pop band, but there is a commercial tint to it, like it. We're back to the same old thing of like, well, let's see where this is going to, you know, catch sale, you know. Yeah. Um, 
do you find that a band that might be a little bit more tricky to pigeonhole is a little harder for people to to kind of uh kind of get behind have you noticed that at all you hit it right on the head that's exactly what it is uh you know it's it because it is hard to pigeonhole it it doesn't go through as fast it's just you know it's it's going like this it's hit you know the waves are going like this where something that's really obvious is just moving straight through. But, you know, once again, it's like, well, you got to stick to your guns, man. You just got to do what you do. Like I, for me to try to do something, you know, even in the hardcore scene, I, I would write these songs and they would sound like a hardcore song. And I'd go, yeah, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel, it just feels like I'm bullshitting here where I'd rather be real about it. And so, and it's the same now, like, you know, do, do you try to just soften up your sound, go commercial, do whatever? What's the point? I, I just wouldn't even want to ever do something like that. It's right. You know? Yeah. You just do it because that's what, as a songwriter, that's what, that's what's happening right now. Like that's what's coming out. There's, I firmly believe that, um, you know, the energies are, are out there and you need to on a creative level, whatever it is you're doing, whether you're a painter or a songwriter or whatever to open up a mind space, right? Open up a mind space that allows that creativity to come in because, you know, that time when you're, you know, using a power drill or something and that mind space is open. Actually, now you're hearing a goddamn melody, you're hearing a melody in that power drill and you now you run over to your phone and hum that melody in. And, you know, that's what I'm saying. Like keeping your, it's that mind space and it's hard to get to sometimes, especially in today's society. And especially as you get older and all that other stuff to not have your head full of shit, so to speak, <laughs> right. you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. Yeah. The, uh, you know, with you being, gone from florida for as many years as you've been have you at all tried to stay connected in some way shape or form to what's yeah. going on maybe not florida as a whole but maybe more so south florida have you had ties still and connections still down there where you've been able to keep aware of what's going on yeah i do um and um oh well, you know when uh rattlebone was touring we went we went back to florida you know, we, we, that was kind of fun going back there, uh, you know, with a record deal and stuff, but, um, where was that? Like, Do you remember where that, where that was at, where you played? Yeah, we, pl I know we did Tampa, the rocket club. Remember that place? I've heard of it. Uh, we, and, and then we did, um, a place in, uh, Miami, I, I maybe called the kitchen or it, it was at, it was a club that had came up years after we, yeah, had the kitchen was but, a club. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, Orlando, uh, we played in Orlando with Driving and Crying, uh, another great band. Uh, I saw them open for Aerosmith a long time ago. Driving and Crying, yeah, they were phenomenal. We did a lot of shows with them. But um, getting back to Florida, uh, yes, there's some musicians I'm still in contact with. And then you probably heard about that. Did you, the Miami Punk Reunion show they did a few years ago? I think it was about five, six years ago now. Um, Glad you brought I, that up because you were on stage for that show. I was. I was. That was kind of fun. I, I, I felt honored 
to be up there with uh, Chris Bacon and Ray Harris from the legendary Zed Cars. Um, I, I felt outstayed. I should have jumped off the stage earlier because I, they wanted me to sing songs they didn't really know. <laughs> so, you know, it, you know, I remember that starting off with a bang because I knew the four songs they wanted me to sing. And then, you know, it turned into like, oh, well, let's play some more. And I, it was great, but um, it was fun. Uh, and, and that was my last time on a stage there. Uh, that, was at, that was at Churchill's. That was at Churchill's. And believe it or not, the Drills never played Churchill's, mainly because uh, we were on our way out of L.A. or uh, out of Miami by the time Churchill started becoming a spot. I. I remember going there once or twice before I took off, but, you know, just getting drunk in there. And one time I got a fight in there one night too. Some guy was molesting my girlfriend while she was passed out. <laughs> Those were the days. <laughs> so yeah, a big fight broke out. Um, but Yeah. Churchill's that's where that was. And it was kind of cool, man. There was all, you know, all the Miami, a lot of the legends that are still alive. Uh, you know, Charlie Pickett was there and, um, you know, some of the guys from the eat and, you know, it was cool. The front, there, there was a good scene, man. Was there any band in particular or maybe someone that really got you most excited since you hadn't really played on stage down there first time at Churchill's playing, you know, yeah. was, there, was there anyone else that you were really oh, yeah. excited to get a chance to see play? Oh yeah, for sure. Almost everybody actually. And, um, uh, also there was a band called amazing grace. Do you remember them? Those guys were my friends yeah. and man, did we love them. Uh, it's funny when the drills and amazing grace were kind of at, uh, at the same time in the, in the Miami scene. And there was like one group of camp of people that liked us. And there was another camp of people that liked them and like, and, I always really loved them. I looked up to them and was, I was in awe of how professional they seemed to be like they had great gear and they had it together and like, seemed like we were still kind of like ragamuffin band with like, you know, mix and matching gear. And like, you know, we, we just didn't have the financial backing that they did. I, I found out later on that doc McGee, maybe I shouldn't be saying this, but somebody was funding them with some pot money. And so they had all this, you know, stuff and, you know, they made a bigger sounding record. And, but the truth is, is that we liked each other a lot. Like the, we loved those guys and they were always super cool to us. And like, there was always this kind of like pitched rivalry and it, it so wasn't anything really like that at all. There was no rivalry at all. Those guys were great. So I was excited to see them. Uh, you know, everybody. It was great seeing everybody down there. Yeah, I can yeah. imagine. Because those types of things, they don't happen every day. <laughs> There's Especially so many. You know, they did a thing there at that where they were showing uh, people, our, our musician friends and, and scenester people that were gone now, you know, up on a screen. You know, you're just going, wow, wow, wow. You know, people... Uh, people were checking out already. Like, you know, uh, you know, our generation was the, uh, and I have a song called this too, the Hepsi generation. 
We weren't the Pepsi generation. We were the Hepsi generation. Like so many people that, you know, uh, affected so many people of, in my age bracket, people that were drinking and drugging a lot, you know, came down with the Hep, the Hep you know, Hep C. So, you know, uh, people are, uh, people are, you know, some don't make it, you know, it's kind of sad. Was uh, Alex Herrera showed on that screen too? Yeah, Alex Herrera was on there. And um, I also did a record um, in 87 before I left Miami with the Psycho Daisies. And you know who those guys are, right? Uh, John Salton. Yeah, John Salton, the guitar god, good friend of mine. Um, Johnny asked me to sing. I always wanted to talk about this, actually. Uh, Johnny wanted me to sing on a record they were making. and We were hanging out. A little at that time listening to music and stuff we liked the same stuff and i loved the psycho daisy so i was like yeah cool so um he had me come down to a space there was actually a recording studio he had me come down to a recording studio and there were some songs and so i literally learned them pretty much on the spot right one by one but the levels of intoxication were getting as the hours were ticking on that was getting heavier and heavier and then you know we i think i cut like five songs or something with them just singing all fucked up into the mic <laughs> and then so i said to john later on like a couple of days later okay so when when can i do my vocals on the on the tracks like you know the like get into them he goes oh so we're already done with it we're just going to use use that stuff so it, it is what it is, but I found it really amusing that that record is called uh, Sonically Speaking, got on um, Spin Magazines at the end of the 80s. They had the best of the 80s uh, issue of Spin Magazine in it, and it had the top 80 independent records. And that fu- there's that fucking record. It's like it was like they listed it like number 67 or something, you know, like they, there's that record that I just couldn't even believe that he just threw out there. You know, um, I got paid two little caps of heroin and a six pack. For <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, at least you remember, you know, the specifics of that too. That's good. Oh, I don't remember too much of it, but okay. the, the general, the general uh, memory of it was, is that, you know, wow, I just learned the songs and I'm really fucked up and it'd be great to, you know, do this, you know, again in the proper zone and like it didn't happen, but um, whatever. I was still kind of, I'm, I'm honored to be affiliated with Johnny, like his, he was great, man. I seen that guy going off on at Charlie Pickett gigs and Psycho Daisies. You know what I mean? I I was a huge fan of his. So like being affiliated with all those guys, that was Johnny Salton, that was Marco Pettit, and John Sticks Galloway. All those guys are gone. Uh, that record, I'm the only guy alive. <laughs> so you know, playing with those dudes. Just or being affiliated with them. That's fucking awesome. Man. Yeah. Those guys, are, those guys are legends to me. Definitely one of those bands that uh, I kind of wish more people were aware of. They're almost like, you know, I think so much time has passed 
since Psycho then? Daisies. Yeah, Psycho Daisies. Yeah. yeah. Well, well of- same with Charlie Charlie Pickett. I you know, I to me, Charlie Pickett was always the godfather of our scene. Always had the highest uh respect for him. And funny story, about two, three weeks ago, I was driving home on a Friday night and my phone rings and I look and it says Dana Point, Florida, I think. This was a Florida number. And I answer it and I hear this voice go, Roger Deering, Charlie Pickett. And I just went, wow, man, Charlie Pickett. Charlie Pickett's calling me, man. Like, this is one of my heroes. It was great. And, like, we had a a good long chat and, uh, you know, felt like we were old friends, you know. Like, uh, you know, I told him, Charlie, anytime you're in California, hit me up, dude. I'd love to see you. Like, you know, those were the guys that I went when I first got to Miami and I went and saw this band and I saw these three fucked up guys, this angry drummer, lead guitar player, just staggering around out of his mind. And the other guitar player, the bass player looking all like dope fiendy and, you know, messed up. And then there's Charlie, like, you know, this dude that drove a bulldozer in the daytime, like singing in a rock band. But he was kind of like, they kind of always reminded me of like the Velvet Underground and the flaming groovies they they were just cool like they there was something special about that band a lot of great bands back then it's like florida man that's where it was happening then you know i can't think of a cooler place for for my formative years as a musician in florida and in particular that south florida and not really the hardcore scene we were around a little bit before that the punk scene the underground music scene and like that kind of was the beginning of it, you know, of, of, you know, what we want to do with music. And it was a great time, I think, to be a part because it was so uh, flourishing and growing and it was all new and different. And I think a lot of, uh, a lot of the understanding, I feel like they able to put more things into the context. And I, you know, you were in the recent book uh, that Joey Seaman and Chris Potash put out punk under the sun. You, May have a look at that. There you you go. And we didn't plan that. This book is great. People buy it. It's really (laughs) cool. Yeah. Talk about that. Why is it a cool book? Well, it's a cool book because um, they managed to put it out and tell the story of a lot of really cool things that happened there. Um, I was there. I witnessed it and I, I participated in it. And, and I got messed up and said it was pure sex, drugs and rock and roll. And it, and it was it was awesome place to be. There was in, in a lot of this. What he managed to do in that book is talk about some other bands. There's a lot of bands that got missed in there. That always happens. But this is the first book to start shedding some light that there was a really vibrant, lively scene here with a lot of stuff going on. There, it, it was a cool time to be uh, of a young age in in Miami at that time. You know, so, so much cool shit going on, man. There was fire and ice. There was hot goth chicks everywhere. You know, at the, that scene, the punk scene. You know, there was the rock scene. There was. It was just a fun time to be around. You know, um, lots of drugs, good cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and because because all these kinds of scenes were going on simultaneously, when you were looking through the book for the first time, did you find that there was something that maybe you missed that you were learning about yourself? Um, no, I, I kind of knew, um, like, by the time I, I started hanging out there, I saw a lot of cool bands. So I, you know, I kind of had my finger on the pulse on most of that stuff. The stuff that was cool for me, though, was the stuff that I missed before I got there. Uh, you know, the reactions, you know, who I mentioned earlier, who I really love. Now, the Eat, I did get a chance to see. And as a matter of fact, I saw them quite a few times. And um, before the uh, drills were formed, when we started off as the upsetters, our very first drummer was Chris Cotty of the Eat. I met Chris. I saw him play live. I remember he, I think he ran off the stage naked and he, and he ran down the street naked. I'm not kidding. And like, that was like the first time I saw him and I was like, wow. And then I was taking a class at Miami Dade community college and it was an auto audio visual class. And lo and behold, here's a guy that comes pushing in like a little rubber made with a you know projector on it. And it's fucking Chris Cotty. And I'm like, that's a dude from the E. And at that point, I was trying to put together a band. Chris came over to our crib, and we were we were jamming Roxy music, editions uh, of You. We were jamming Devo, early Devo songs, uh, and a couple Sex Pistol songs, and you know, with a couple other dudes and Chris Cotty, and um, didn't pan out. But um, Chris Cotty and the E. Uh, so there was bands that I just didn't see and, and getting a chance to read about and seeing them get some recognition. Really cool. Cause I knew about him. I just didn't get a chance to see him. I was one of those dudes, man, that ever since I was a kid, when I'd go see a band, I would check out everything, what amp they're playing, what cable they're using, what foot pedals they're using, what shoes the dude's wearing, what clothes he's got on, what, I'm telling you, man, I would check it all out in the good rock and roll stuff. Like, you know, I, I lived and breathed that kind of stuff, the music and the, and the presentation, like it, it, it meant a lot to me even back then. So, you know, um, seeing some of these bands like that, like the Zed cars and getting a chance to play with Ray and Chris, those guys were gods, man. Even back then, like they just weren't famous you know, or Screaming Sneakers, another great band. I saw that. I remember seeing them at Flynn's and I was thinking, why isn't this band one of the biggest punk bands in the world? They've got songs. Lisa Nash is a total star. She, I mean, tattoos and a mohawk before anybody, any other chicks, like way ahead, like in great songs. Like there was just so much great stuff in Miami. It really was great bands. Yeah. And th and that is one of those unfortunate things, right? You Because you having a chance to see them way back when, and then you get the book, Punk Under the Sun, you look at the pictures, and you get a real visual of yeah. not only what they sound like, but what they look like. And yeah. you ask yourself that same question, like, how was that band not bigger than yeah. they were? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, Miami... Uh, is uh, it's really far. Uh, it's a long drive down there, right? So to, to journey around, get out of there, it's tough. Uh, there's really no record company 
industry there or close by, you know, uh, so you'd have to go to New York or, you know, where there's a really thriving indie scene that might have a, a mid-sized cool label or whatever. I'm talking about back then, you know, um, there just wasn't an infrastructure to help musicians. And like, so there, you know, this punk rock was not a big business yet. It was still being done in dumpy little wherever, right? And, you know, even backyards or whatever. It was, I remember the drills playing some kid's living room, packed, kids going out ape shit right in front of us. But it was in a living room, but it was just like insanity. Like you would just play. It wasn't a, it wasn't a business. It was, it was a, a movement. It was a, a youth movement of high energy, you know, the hardcore scene, which was, you know, even in a more of an extension of the punk scene, it, it upped the ante, you know, energy wise, you know, like, so it, it was a movement, you know, you could see it, you could see it from right. when, when, when the drills moved from doing the nightclub to now an all ages thing, you saw it just growing. Like every show, there was more and more kids and younger kids. Like it, it yeah, caught a it, nerve with that. It opened crap. the doors to more people to come in and it being more accessible. And now you can really expand your audience to the people who wouldn't yeah. go to those shows because they were too young. And now you're getting that crowd and it's that and energy. And when you're yeah, at that age, that kind of energy is very, very attractive. You know, it really is. It, See, my thing was, is that I was attracted to the energy, but I needed uh, more musicality in it. I got bored real quick in it and it needed to, it needed to have dynamics like the music, you know, and like, and that's what I was saying about the drills. When the drills came to LA, that element of the band, the dynamics and the songwriting became, it just moved up from, that more kind of, you know, uh, high energy rock, but not as dynamic. It was to me, it always felt like underdeveloped, <laughs> but the drill, the drills were a drinking club. That's what I was. We really were. It was a drinking club. And then the band thing was kind of next. <laughs> and just on that note, Roger, how would you describe in your opinion, what the legacy of the drills is? Um, for outsiders that, um, put together a, a high energy rock band of doing their own material and holding their own and going toe to toe with everybody else of that era, which was an era of really, really, uh, high energy music you know, listen to the, what the, you know, the bad brains or like just the energy of all those bands back then. It was so, um, it was free of, um, worrying about, um, selling records. You know what I mean? It, it didn't come from that. It came from, I need to get this out. It's uh, whether it was an anger or an aggression or whatever. Uh, it was, a, it was a way of blowing off steam. Which is funny. Ironically, all those bands from that era that are still doing it are making big fucking money now. Some of them, 
You know, I'm seeing some of my friends finally after 40 years of not making dough, like touring the world. Right. You know, older uh, hardcore bands, like they've got another lease on life because the internet, everything else, you know, there's the whole world is connected now. You got fans over here that you never knew you had, fans over there you never knew you had. And now you can go do stuff. It's been wonderful uh, getting you on the podcast to talk about your life and the story, uh, the journey that you've taken over the years. And I know we spent a lot of time talking about the drills and that's important, uh, but also talking about the other bands that you've been in and how a lot of that changed when you went out to LA and the West coast of the country. So, uh, exciting to know that you're still doing your thing and crime wave. Still is kicking on- it, man. Yeah, so, so. <laughs> <laughs> And that's fantastic. So as we get ready to kind of close things out, I do want to turn it over to you. Any final words you want to share to fans of yours, bands you played in, past, present, future, uh, anything you want to share, I'll turn it over to you. Hey, first, let me say thanks for having me. This is so cool, Jeff. This The, the whole thing is really awesome. The whole Florida uh, connection, I love it. It's, it's great. And I feel uh, honored and chuffed to be here. Um, but I would want to say this is that, you know, anybody that's kind of known me over the years or, or the bands that I've been involved with is like, you know, check, check out what we're doing right now. I mean, I'm really, really proud of this band, the Crime Wave Band. As you can see, it's spelled C-R-Y-M-W-A-V. I don't know why we chose that name, but we, it, it's, I think it was kind of like to have our own space. Like, so, you know what I mean? This is, no one else is spelling this fucking name like this. This is us. Um, but this is some pretty uh, ass-kicking stuff. We're on the band camp thing and, like, the whole um, social media thing. We could use, you know, we could use the help over there. Come give our page the like. Uh, we're not going to, like, you know, bombard you with bullshit. But, you know, we do have some pretty kick-ass rock and roll coming up. And, uh, you know, love to see everybody there. Yeah, thanks for having me, dude. Appreciate it.